Hello, welcome back to the Masonic Roundtable, a weekly program where Masons from around the world get together to talk about Masonic news and opinions in a friendly and social manner. As a reminder, the thoughts and opinions expressed here are solely the opinions of the participants and do not represent any Grand Lodge statements or positions. Make sure you keep your conversations open for the public and on the level. So, to interact with us, you can always join us live every Thursday night. You can watch us on Facebook, Hello Facebook Land, or on YouTube, or you can watch the chat later, right? You can pretend you're interacting with us after the fact. So, it's always there, always available, and that's what we love to do. You know me, my name is John Ruark. I'm a past master of the Patriot Lodge, number 1957, in Fairfax, Virginia. And we have a, a full house tonight, so... Without further ado, the next up is Jason Richards. Hello, Jason. Hello, John. And hello, TMR watchers slash listeners. Jason Richards here, past master of Vacation Lodge number 16 in Clifton, Virginia, member of the Colonial Lodge number 1821 in Washington, D.C., and Lafayette Lodge number 79 in Zanesville, Ohio. Huzzah. Next up, Joe Martinez. Hi, Joe. Ooh, hello. Hello internet world uh this is joe uh i was waiting for my name to pop up because i forget it there it, it is. comes Boom. up when you say it it's voice activated ah, like joe martinez hey hi Boom. yes yeah hey hi hi joe martinez uh current master of manassas lodge number 182 in manassas virginia member of a bunch of other lodges uh pay a lot of dues and uh super excited to be here tonight Woo! Woo! <laughs> next up robert johnson hello and good evening Hello, and uh, good to be with you guys. Robert Johnson from Waukegan 78, past master there, current sitting secretary at Space Novum 1183, the premier education lodge in the state of Illinois, and um, other stuff. Many other things. All right. And last but not least, our special guest for this evening, the illustrious Steve Harrison. Hello, and welcome. Thank you, John. How are you? Uh, you want to give us a quick little bio? Uh, past master of Liberty Lodge number 31, Liberty, Missouri. Past master of the Missouri Lodge of Research. I think that should do it. And if you recognize those docile tones, they are also a part of the um, min One Minute Mason. Or oh, that's right. I should have given Robert Minute. Show the Masonic one. Minute? Yeah. Masonic Minute, yeah. <laughs> so it's great to great to see and hear you. And, uh, yeah, it's been too long, as we were saying in the green room. Um, I think the last time we saw each other in person was 2017. So uh, we've got we to do some traveling. But here we are. So great. we got a full house tonight. It's going to be a great topic. So before we do that, I want to especially thank the, all the patrons who supporting been supporting the show over the years. Uh, you guys are awesome and help us uh, keep upgrading our equipment. So if you want to help support the show and join our little super secret chat room, head over to patreon.com slash... <coughs> The Masonic Roundtable, and uh, chip in a few bucks, and we'd love to see you there. So thanks. Thanks in advance. Okay. Well, Steve, uh, why don't you kind of set the stage? Because uh, before, before I hand it over to you, just wanted to just remind everyone who's listening that this fraternity that we have is pretty unique in the sense of there are very few institutions left in the world probably where you have such a wide breadth of uh, multi-generationality in the same place, right? So we, you know, I was trying to think of what other organizations have people that basically could hang out with people their grandparents' age, right, at, in the same function, performing the same deeds. And so even, even in, like, religious structures, I know that my church even has, like, um, you know, Bible study groups for... Um, people are in their 20s and 30s and there's bible group study for people who are in their teens and and so even then we segregate by by age and, and demographics and so our yeah, church yes our church and so <laughs> when i go it's mine and then um, <laughs> and so and yet in freemasonry because of our beautiful institution of every everyone being on the level we try not to have you know, the, the young guys group of Freemasonry and the, the, the married men or the singled men or the, you know, the, the, the men who are retired. So we don't, we don't do that for all the right reasons. But so that remains this additional opportunity or challenge of having a multi-generational uh, fraternity that has to work 
and do good service projects and you know exist together which is which is again very uh, unorthodox in today's society and so having um we were talking in the green room the last time we we talked about the generations in the craft was way back probably in our first or second year where we had eric diamond on where we just did a, a little run through of the various generations that exist in the craft today that is all still relevant and yet you know we wanted to bring in where um i believe eric diamond is part of the gen x uh generation i know many of us are gen x gen y here we certainly uh, would love to get a little bit more of a flavor from the baby, baby boomer perspective. And so, um, I don't know if you have it at the ready before we dive into the various generations, but um, did you did you want to lay out like where these age ranges or, or birth years kind of fall in? Or I, I have that if you if you want me to kind of cover that really quick. Of like, Why don't you go ahead and do it? I, I had it, but I don't have it in front of me. Yeah, I, 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 again, I, I've, I've kind of studied this for a little bit. So uh, the the baby boomer, baby boomer generation comes from the baby boom that happened after World War II. So therefore, uh, the, the baby boomer generation starts roughly around 1946 and goes to 1964-ish. Um, and then uh, after that time period, from 1965... Until about 1977 uh, to 1980, depending on you know where you want to draw lines, that's the the Generation X who are more latchkey, and we can go to the differences between them and their formative years later on. And then basically you know, the the post 1977, I call post Star Wars generation, is uh, the the Millennials or the Generation Y, because after X comes Y, and then uh, even now we're seeing um, the uh, the the in, in, influx of Generation Z, who are basically people born in the, the mid to late 90s into the early 2000s. They are now of age, you know, to join the craft. And so we're now getting this this uh, even even uh, a generation younger than all of the, the hosts here uh, to to be part of this craft. But let's let's talk about <clears throat> specifically the baby boomer generation and kind of the <clears throat> basically what makes them tick. What's uh, what are their formulative years? What's you know where what is it that makes um you know what are their what are their value systems based on? So let's I'm going to hand it over to you, Steve, to kind of set set the stage. Okay, well I think I don't know there may be some things that I am going to say here that will surprise you, but you're you're correct. This show really emanates from that show that you had with Eric Diamond years ago. Although on your show and his show, you've alluded to to the different generations from time, but that show that you had was a, a pretty complete synopsis of all the generations. And I remember when I was watching it way back then, I kind of thought, wow, I, I wish I had a baby boomer on the show. I wouldn't say to defend himself, but at least to maybe clarify some things, mm -hmm. because I think there are some misconceptions. Eric fun that with a series of shows of his own, and he talked about uh, the different generations too. And on your show and his show, one of the things that I that really got me to thinking was in talking about the boomers and the combination of the the two shows that we had back then about the boomers. The Vietnam War was only mentioned three times. You mentioned it twice on the Masonic Roundtable. Uh, sort of one of them was like just a laundry list. And then uh, the other times, you and Eric kind of said the same thing on your respective shows. It was almost the same sentence. The baby boomers ended the war in Vietnam. And that, that was about it. And I just think, and I was thinking back then, any discussion of the boomers and, and what made them tick, as you put it, has to include massive doses of the Vietnam. And so we'll be talking about that in just a minute. Uh, it, it so affected us back then that I'm, I'm not sure the impact of that war rests with you guys today. I just don't know. But in, pre in preparing for this show, one of the things I did 
was I went out and I looked at uh, the Associated Press list of the top 100 events of the century. And I have to clarify that a little bit. They were they were headline events, you know, so it, it would be an event like Nixon elected, not Vietnam War. Vietnam War was too broad to make a headline, you know, or um, Mount St. Helens erupts as opposed to the space race. So yeah. even knowing that, even well, so, knowing so we're, to, we're talking about to that headline... Point. Yeah, to that point, I mean, I didn't all of these generations do have kind of defining wars as part of their formulative experiences, they do. right? Right. So they we have, right, we have, we have nine eleven for most most of uh, the rest of the hosts here. We know where we were when nine eleven started, right? Um, but we're not around when Vietnam started or ended, right? And then, um, and then you have some of the new generations today, even with you know the the pull out of Afghanistan or 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 even what's going on in, in Ukraine right now. So, yeah, so these are all defining moments, part yes. of the um, the larger makeup of a generation. So go ahead. It's kind of a sad thing that all of those wars are defining moments in our generation, and now we got a, apparently a new one coming on. Um, but anyway, I went back to that list of, of the top 100 events, according to the Associated Press, of the 20th century, and it just almost shocked me. Vietnam was such a force in my, as I was growing up in my young adulthood, in those top 100 events, Vietnam did not even appear until number 62. I would have put it anything wow. in the top 10. You're looking surprised, but go check me out. Number 62, and that event. U.S. combat troops arrive in South Vietnam and that they started bombing North Vietnam. On the Steve, APD what is number one? Had, I would have to go I'm look. Just, <laughs> um, I'm trying to okay. find it. The moon landing was up there. Um, I'm sorry, uh, Robert. I would. Uh, I could produce yeah, it. For don't. You. I do not have it in front of me. <laughs> What were the other? Don't 60? worry about it. We can put it. Can we put it in your show notes? I'll put the whole list in your show notes. There you go. You want to read all um, sixty-one of them? And, yes. uh, so, but yeah. So number sixty-three, the one right behind it was the North Vietnam takeover. I don't, you know, I don't know if it was coincident. There. And I don't know what your viewers know about Vietnam and how important some of these events were. In that list, the Gulf of Tonkin was 95, and the Gulf of Tonkin resolutions were not on the list. The Gulf of Tonkin was a little skirmish. People got upset about it. There was a rumor there was a second skirmish, which there wasn't. And then Congress got together and made the Gulf of Tonkin resolutions, which was essentially a declaration of war without being a declaration of war. So it was a very significant event. But it was 95, the, the little skirmish. Things, and I don't know what you know about the Vietnam War, the Melee Massacre was not on the list. Kent State was not on the list. The release of the Pentagon Papers was not on the list. And there was another event that affected me a lot that you might think was not part of the Vietnam War, but uh, the Pueblo affair was not on the list. The Pueblo affair was where one of our ships in Ishinal waters was captured by the uh, North Koreans and the crew was held hostage or whatever you want to call it, prisoner for a year, brutally tortured. Um, and came home as American heroes, greeted by Ronald Reagan when they finally got back. Uh, it was a big, big story. And then the Navy tried to court-martial the commander. And it, it just, to me, uh, that was a real object lesson in a reason not to like the Navy brass. 
So none of those were on there. Joe? Yeah, no, uh, Brother Steve, I was actually going to ask a question. You put your you hand up. I, I did. I felt like I was in class. I was, I was going to ask a question uh, of you, Brother Steve. So uh, myself being a product of, you know, a different wartime generation, um, and I can answer this question in, in my own way, um, you know, especially having lived through some of it. You talk about those examples of headlines that were so far low down the, the AP's list of, of top 100 headlines. Can you explain to me, as a person who didn't grow up in that generation, why that was such an impactful time in your in your upbringing and your growing up and you're becoming a man like what were some of the points that were so poignant or memorable or shocking or or transformative for you living through the vietnam war we could spend the next hour on that <laughs> um first of all those events i named were transforming about the vietnam war and um let me talk about it just a little bit now and then go into more depth later. That war affected everybody my age. You, see, you were subject to the draft. And at some point, you probably were going to be a part of that war. Whether you were for it or not, um, it was a part of your life. And it was an undercurrent of everything you were doing. In many respects, I had the same college experience that all of you guys did. You know, I went out, we built homecoming floats, we had parties and all that kind of stuff. But you knew Vietnam was just all under the surface. And you knew that every morning when you, you opened the school paper, which we all, it was a pretty good paper, somewhere in there was going to be a map of Vietnam. You were going to see it and it was going to be places you had never heard of that all of that was affecting your life. Um, can I talk about that a little bit later? It was a progressive thing. As a freshman, I wrote um, my only editorial about the Vietnam War. And uh, at the time, let's just put it this way, it probably is not the best thing I ever wrote. And I think the gist of the editorial that I wrote was sort of, and you understand the controversy was raging even at that time. And I think my point was like, well, you know, uh, if we're there, I'm on our side because there are, I guess, people who weren't. But um, it, it, like I say, not my best article. I could have also said, and I'm for home, mother, and apple pie, and I'm on our side. And, um, but, by the time you're a senior in college, very likely you're going to go over there. And all of those events that I named affected me. Um, we knew as a group of students that if that war was escalated to the point that we could win it, uh, Soviet Union and China would probably move in on us and we would be talking about World War III. And we knew it was never going to get to that point. And, and you just got the feeling all along that it was a hope cause. And yet you were going to be involved. So I, I, I will say this, Joe. Um, I was against in Vietnam. I marched against the war in Vietnam. Um, I was not the soldiers. In fact, the whole thrust of why I was against the war in Vietnam was because we wanted those guys to get homely. Uh, I was not against the country, and it was, in fact, my right to speak out against what my government was doing at the time. But it had nothing to do with my patriotism or any dislike of the soldiers. And I, 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 I need to clear, because I know... I <clears throat> yeah, I, I would chime in, Brother Steve, and say that, you know, having served as a soldier, you know, the 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 work of a soldier is to protect the rights of citizens to assemble and to have free speech and to, you know, have all those other lovely rights that are written in the Constitution. So, yeah, I don't think that anyone here on this panel would would pass judgments for those who are exercising their their rights that are given to them by this country. And that's that's 
one of the jobs of, of a soldier or a seaman or an airman or a Marine. Um, politics aside, you know, I'm never going to talk about the politics in context of of war because they're two different things, right? You have the, the context of living through a war and fighting in a war, and you have that local tactical aspect of being in a war, right? You've got your buddy here and your buddy here, and you're just trying to get through it as opposed to the political parts, which are way too big for people like me to, you know, to, to ponder and pontificate about, right? Because I'm not or ever going to be the decision maker. So I absolutely hear what you're saying. I just, I just wanted to ask Steve, one of the things that I think is really interesting about the boomer generation, and you and I have had talks about this is I was really kind of unaware of like, we've got this, I don't know, general ballpark range of where the baby boomers come from. But you had told me in a conversation, we were in Illinois, I don't know, somewhere down south, I think at Darren's Lodge maybe. And we had talked about this idea that you told me they actually have like the name of the first baby boomer and the, the time she was born and everything. Like she's the first classified person as a baby boomer. And I found that so fascinating. Um, but aside from that, this idea of the uh, the stereotypical baby boomer, the stereotypical boomer, right? Like I love, there's this meme thing and it's really funny. And it's like the guy who has, it's like he's boomer Steve, they call it actually, I think it's called, but it's not, not about you, but it projects the stereotype about the boomer generation that I think has probably tainted what a lot of people will think because it just propagates the stereotype. And when I had talked to you, you know, I really never thought about it, right? My mom is a boomer too. And I never thought like y'all were march. I never thought about like the ideas like that you guys marched against Vietnam, that you guys, you guys ushered in the computer era, you know, like, um, it's just kind of wild. And, and I'm just wondering on some of your thoughts about those, those stereo, those stereo, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. The old economy, Steve is what it's called. Drives up federal deficit for 30 years. What would it say? Hands the bill to his kids, right? Like these are just so bad stereotypes. Um, they're funny to me, but you know, my mom doesn't think they're funny and I'm sure Steve, I'm sure Steve, you don't think they're super funny, but like, this is what, like where people are focused on. And I think we forget about things like, you know, the, the inventor of Atari is also the founder of Chuck E. Cheese, who is a boomer. And uh, I have infinite thanks to that guy. <laughs> well, I have, two, I have two things. First, Kathleen Casey Kirschling was born one minute after midnight, January 1st, 1946. Pop culture, and we're going to talk about pop culture, has her as the first boomer. So uh, she's in Wikipedia. She's all you have to do is is uh, look her up uh, there or in many other places. And I'm and I have this to say, Robert. She is no more the first boomer than I am. And wait till I get to that. Now that we're halfway through the show. Um, I have an opening statement. Can I read that, John? By all means. Okay. Um, this should wrap things up for us once we get to this. Um, this is today's view of the boomers. Um, they're spoiled brats who had it all, went off to college and became idealists, dreaming up a fantasy society that they were going to create, but never did. Talked up peace and love turned on, tuned in, and dropped out while gorging themselves on sex, drugs, and rock and roll, then grew up, let corporate greed take over their lives, sucked up all the good jobs and money, retired, and are working to dry up the Social Security system and have fixed it so generations that followed would have it tough and never be able to retire. That pretty well sums us up, right? Couldn't have said it better it's, myself. <laughs> it's what's out there. Certainly. It's a stereotype. You, uh, I don't know. You may have said it yourself at one point or another. I don't know. <laughs> I sure hope not. Um, 
can we start to maybe dissect some of that stuff and figure out where the boomers really are today? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's the thing with all these generations. So, Any generational stereotype is just that. It's a stereotype that, that tries to interpolate, you know, uh, a group of people uh, often incorrectly, right? Because we're all individuals. And yet, um, when you try to assign people labels, then obviously you get, um, you get things wrong quite a bit. So let, let's, let's break it down, Steve. Okay, so you're right. We always say we won't, we can't generalize, we won't stereotype, and then the only way to talk about it is to generalize and stereotype. So, um, growing up in the 50s, first thing, thing, I have a rhetorical question. How, if the boomers are 46 to 64, how can uh, somebody born between 60 and 64 grow up in the 50s? That's rhetorical. I have an answer because, as I think you made the point, these things are flexible. The years aren't just cast in stone, and the what the the attitudes of the fifties probably bled over it halfway into these. Um, and for me, it was it was a pretty good time to grow up. Um, if you can picture in your mind a house with a white picket fence, which is probably the stereotypic uh, house, um, take away the picket fence, you're looking at the house I grew up in. I mean, we didn't have a picket fence, but it was a nice little white house. We had, as they say, two cars in the garage and uh, a pot in every chicken, or a chicken in every pot. And it, it stricter time, the, the uh, oh, the stereotype, Stereotype or the, the classic thing people will tell you about part of it was, you know, Lucy and Ricky had separate beds. The society had, um, they had their own morals, but when as a society, they were a little different. Um, I can tell you as a kid at that time, uh, if you got in trouble at school, you were subsequently in trouble at home. That's just the way it was. As it looks today, if you get in trouble in school, your parents sue the school. So it was kind of a, a different experience growing up like that. But as we said, all of that extended into the 60s. And so when we got to college, the boomers, I mean, I have the memory. I moved into my dorm. I'm making friends as I'm moving in. I went over to oh, to take me. I pull out of their parking lot and drive off into the sunset. And I'm thinking, where's the party? And um, I think a lot of people were thinking that, and it did not last long. We had something in school back then. A lot of these did. It was the law that the university then became legally, legally your parent. And so they had rules you can't believe. The doctrine is a legal doctrine called in loco parentis. There started to be articles in the school newspaper talking about it. And they had this whole bunch of rules that we would now follow. And so the strictness of the 50s, over into just the time we got into college. They were, there were rules like, for example, um, no women in male dorms at all, no males in the women's dorms. Um, freshmen could not live off campus because, so there's no, there was no getting around the rules. Um, Female students had, I can tell you to this day, it was 10 o'clock on weeknights and 12 o'clock on weeks. Um, they had a morality clause that you had to adhere to if they felt like you were uh, contributing to a lack of morals on the campus, they could uh, expel you. And it was mainly directed at women. Absolute alcohol anywhere on campus. Campus was completely dry. And we in my dorm, had to dress for Sunday dinner, coat and tie. 
Maybe they thought they were a TO lodge. I don't know. But you didn't get into cafeteria well, without a coat a well, tie. So well, Sunday, just, at least, that you dressed up for, was it actually a lovely dinner or was it mediocre? It was better. That's a good question. It really was. It was a better on Sunday dinner. So, you know, um, but I think most. Most of the people would have rather not dressed up so, if you want to know the truth. So, <laughs> but you know, to, to your point you know, though, I, what were you wearing? That's, I mean, you, you make it sound like the, you know, we, we here in the 20, the, you know, the 20 teens and the 2020s think, oh, a big, you know, it's a big pain in the butt to get dressed in a suit and tie, right? And some younger folks think that and stuff. But what was the day to day dress for school from Monday to Friday? Probably the same as it is today. I mean, jeans and T-shirts and things like that. So just Sunday was the rule. Uh, I'll get back to that when we get there. Um, in the 50s, um, it, it, it's one of the issues I have. It was a great time to, to grow up. You know, we we do lament the fact that our kids today have to go to school and have active shooter drills because there are active shooters in the schools, but we had nuclear bomb drills. There was a time that the press came into my classroom. I was probably about third grade or so, hauled the whole class into the gymnasium, had us all get down on our knees, do duck and cover position, took our picture, and it was in the paper. We had nuclear bomb drills. And... Um, Later on in our lives, they became more real than you might think ever became. One thing during that time, um, and it was a good time to grow up, we had a lot if you were white. But I think we all know that that did not apply to other ethnic people. And they, they did not have the nice halcyon days of yore in the 50s that we had. And I, I kind of hate to say it. I mean, the generations that came before us were extremely racist. Uh, I'm, I, and again, we're generalizing. It is not universally true. But you know, you've seen the news, you've seen the newsreels, what it was like back then. Um, and I think our generation began to change that. The generation gap was very real. So that's kind of up in the 50s. Um, so let me, I, let me jump I in here that, because you're setting a, sure. a, an interesting portrait, uh, albeit generalized, of the, the code of morality that comes in the daily life uh, of the, yeah. the shared experience of respect for authority, respect for um, boundaries, respect for your community, and really, you know, falling in line, and especially if you're younger, right, that you have to, uh, at least if you are going to be rebellious, know that you're going to, you know, you're going to be in trouble before you get home. And so, how, let's bring it back to Freemasonry for a minute. What do you, how do you think that sense of morals and ethics and values comes into you know, the, the craft through the insertion of the, the, the baby boomers that enter this, this set of morality. There are more baby boomers than just the generation that went to college during those years. And of course, they didn't all go to college, but that were of college age uh, during those years. And I think one thing I have to establish here is that they had different values and we had different values. Um, would it be fair to say that in a sense we grew up and so those values now that we didn't look at as so great back then uh, look a little different these days? And um, it, it is just different being in a Masonic Lodge in a formal setting with brothers um, who are going to treat you well and, and all that than it was back then when we went to college and looked out the window and said, where's the party? Um, and they said, well, there is not going to be a party. And then we were primed 
to be rebellious so, right then and there. Well, well, I, I don't point. know if that answers your question. Well, For uh, some reason, I don't object to it in a Masonic Lodge. Joe? Yeah, no, so you, you actually, uh, I would love you to pull that thread a little bit, but we actually have a question on YouTube from another person who identifies as a boomer. Um, and uh, I think this can help shed some light on what you just said. So he says, Brother Steve, and he, again, he said he's of the baby boomer generation as well. Uh, it's uh, Brother Gary. He says, Brother Steve, by and large, the boomers did not join masonry. Why do you think that is? Well, the... By and large, the boomers of that generation were generalizing. This is part of this is almost cruel. The, the boomers of that generation were against the Vietnam War, were for civil rights, were very conscious of the environment. And as we saw it, generalizing in the Masonic Lodges, and in the establishment in general, they were for the Vietnam War. They were against civil rights, and they didn't know what the hell the environment was. I, that's the best answer I can give to that question. So Steve, not, I still see that today. I mean, not yeah. like not not the like overwhelming like racist tendencies or whatever, but but I do notice that uh, by and large. Again, as you pointed out, generalizing, um, and and like I don't care about you know you're my brother still whatever uh, you know, but I do find that there is an overwhelming conservative mindset in Freemasonry that is very nationalistic, very supportive of these uh, you know the troops and this that and the other, and it's like I get it. You want to support America? That's awesome. Uh, but at the same time, I I wonder about things like like sometimes I I find uh, the thing that that just blew my mind actually recently, and maybe you can kind of relate to this. But uh, we're talking about people who are for the Vietnam War um, and all of these things, and then recently what we had the big pullout of Afghanistan. And we had uh, massive, massive upsets and grand, like lodges all over the place. That's all guys were talking about. I can't believe we pulled out of Afghanistan, blah, 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 blah. And uh, I just found it like very bizarre. Again, not to, not to get on politics. Yeah. Well, I was politics aside, having been through the end of the Vietnam War, and now the end of the Afghanistan war, the end of Afghanistan to me was a microcosm of the end of the Vietnam war when we pulled out under very chaotic circumstances. And um, it just brought back a lot of memories for me. So let me talk about who our boomers really are. I don't know how it responds to the guy who wrote in to us. Uh, it would be interesting to know uh, like what year he was born, because this is where I've got to start to talk about the bleeding over of the generations. Um, the um, We talked about the first boomer being 1946, you know, uh, but Back then, they did not look at the generations the way we look at them today. There wasn't this whole generation thing. It's like now we've got to name them all. We have got to stereotype them all. And that's it. But back then, I, I, I would like you guys to know that I was uh, in 1966 Time Magazine's Man of the Year. Me and a few million of my closest friends. They named in 1966 the under 25 generation as the Man of the Year. And of course, they called it Man of the Year back then, not Person of the Year. Well, if you do some quick math, they're taking that way back before 1946. Mm -hmm. And I would even take it back farther than that. Because now that group of people, the youth of that day, are 
starting to protest the Vietnam War. We are marching for civil rights. We want change. And if you look at the leaders of all that group and the people who were the primary promoters of all that, every single one of them is older than I am. Every single one. I can't think, you know, uh, to name a few, Tom Hayden, Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin. There are some I'm not going to name because it would give some of the viewers high blood pressure. But um, another statement I would like to read from Mitch Kapoor. Kapoor founded the Lotus Corporation, and I found this. And um, I'll tell you this. I have experienced this. I I could be saying exactly the same thing that he's saying, but sometimes it helps to have an authority instead of just old Steve sitting up here telling these things. Um, he, Mitch Kapoor founded Lotus, and he is, uh, he is also the founder of the Electronic Frontier uh, Foundation. And he had this to say, people who went to school from about 1968 to 1970, that would be me, share a set of values and understandings that people on either side, younger and older, just don't. So when you're in the workplace, or I might add the Masonic Lodge, and you're talking about idealism, early boomers have a sense of that, that things can and should be better, right down to the details of how people treat each other. And when you talk that way, people just a little bit older or a little bit younger, look at you like you're a Martian. I couldn't have said it better myself. I have had this experience. Um, and, and in just a second, I know a little bit about why this happened. And what we're starting to do now is we're starting to look at two sets of boomers, even, in, even when we generalize. Um, I can be in a Masonic Lodge and I can be talking to a guy who's 10 years younger than I am, and we'll talk about something like that. And in my mind, he's a lot younger than me, and I'm thinking, what an old fogey. <laughs> um, this, there becomes a group of, still we, we call them boomers, that to me are taking on the traits, practices, and values of the generations that came before. Right. And, and we can take a look at maybe why that's happening. I go back to as, as we were growing up, those early boomers and the leaders that I just talked about. Man, it was Vietnam. It, it's just so pervasive, kind of like COVID is today. You know, mm -hmm. think of about a year ago when we're trying to do things and no matter what you do, COVID is in the back of your mind. Imagine that last 12 years uh, at its most intense level. That's what Vietnam is doing to us. Uh, it was Joe. always under the surface. It was progressively. Uh, Vietnam is a lifetime away, student deferment. When you're a senior, it gets pretty real. Mm -hmm. Joe, so, you were going to jump uh, in? Yeah, I was going to ask, uh, Brother C. So to answer your question, Brother Gary was born in 1959. So See, that he's a later that. boomer. Later boomer, I, and, right? and again, it would be interesting to have somebody like that on the show. Um, I may say Brother Gary, you're coming on the show. <laughs> I may say That's some cool. things that upset Brother Gary uh, because he is a later boomer. He, gosh, born in 1959. Um, Such a young buck. You know, there, there were experiences that, that we had that people then did not did not have. We didn't, you know, we talk about the generations are common experiences. Um, the earlier boomers experienced, you know, we saw a president gunned down. Now, if he was born in 59, he was what? Four years old when that happened. Maybe could not understand exactly what that meant. We yeah. saw, go ahead, yeah, I was going to say, there, there's a similar um, thing that I noticed uh during the early 2000s of uh, the, the millennials or Gen, Gen Y, that the early millennials had a different uh, economic status or, or uh, work 
workplace status uh, if you join the workforce before the 2008 financial crisis or after <laughs> or during the 2008 financial crisis because it was harder to get a job and, and you know, the, the, you had the recession and we had all that stuff going on. And so same thing is true. Just, just a couple years on either side of the economic collapse, you can get different formative experiences, different, you know, um, entry points into the workplace, etc. Joe? Well, I was going to, I was actually, you, Brother Steve, you said something really poignant in that, you know, the earlier, ver, you know, the earlier members of a generation, the later ones, um, I get into this conversation with, with Gen Xers all the time. There's two different flavors of Gen Xers. There's the Gen Xers that were sitting in school with a TV in the room the day the Challenger exploded. And there were some that were still babies when that event occurred, you know, so, right. um, you know, so yeah, you've got that older generation of Gen X. I remember I sat in school, they would wheel that TV in and plug it into the wall and oh, stuff. And on the uh, cart. yeah, we all saw that, that on the metal cart. blow up. Yeah. Hey, yeah, so, on the metal cart. Yeah. Uh, so brother Steve, I know that you definitely wanted to talk about your experience with the very last Vietnam protest. Tell us about that. Are we at the end of the show already? We're we're uh, we're in the home stretch, but I don't want to. You know, I just want to get your thoughts on that because I know you wanted to make sure we we talked about that. We can always have a part two. Yeah. All right, true. Okay, we may have to. Um, it is just it's not a popular thing that I was against the Vietnam War, and I, I imagine you've got some viewers that think I'm some kind of a, you know subversive on un american commie freaked out hippie or something because you libertine you make love not war yes um we were uh, we may have been against the war we may have been against what the military was doing we may have been against the politicians who were lying to us throughout but we were for the soldiers it was about the soldiers who were dying over there 58,000 of our soldiers and countless Vietnamese soldiers on both sides. Once the war was over, um, we um, there was the final protest. The final Vietnam protest was, and I don't know if you would be familiar with it, that you, you realized that, well, the Americans were the good guys. The North Vietnamese were the bad guys. And the North Vietnamese have a lot of our soldiers, and there was absolutely no guarantee or no word about what would happen to those soldiers who were captive over there once the Vietnam War was over with. In my mind, I thought they would keep them and maybe use them as, as bargaining chips or something like that. And we know that they had been tortured. Uh, they were miserable over there. And so, the movement at that point became to, I wouldn't say adopt a prisoner, but you could get a bracelet that had a prisoner's name on it. And you, we were a very symbolic generation. You would wear that bracelet until that soldier came home. And I brought with me, I've kept them on my desk all those years. There are the two bracelets that my wife, Carolyn, and I had, and we did. We, we wore them until the soldiers whose names are on those bracelets came home. Uh, both of our soldiers came home in March of 1973. And I just hope that helps to convince some people that, that we were um, more about the soldiers than anything in protesting that war. Robert. I, I have a, a real, so this is like a question that I think, you know, Steve, I'm, I'm, this is weird because I'm going to publicly ask you a question that is more of like mentee to mentor. And the question is with the protesting, with the showing of solidarity that that you have done and, and you've talked about, you know, wearing the bracelet and, and protesting and doing these things. Uh, today, we see similar versions of this in the digital landscape. And yet, uh, we are 
kind of drug through the mud for it. Uh, the, the, the term uh, uh, virtue signaling comes up all the time yeah. uh, for a generation of individuals who want to stand for something or show some sort of solidarity. We don't, you know, we don't have bracelets, but we, we've got Facebook frames, you know, or, or whatever the case is. And I'm just curious, you know, like as somebody who was part of a generation that, you know, did take a stand, did get arrested, did stand up to civil rights, did do these things. You know, how do you deal with that kind of criticism, not only from the outside world, but from the people you're supposed to be close with, you know, like within a lodge? This is really difficult for me. How do I deal with it? I keep my mouth shut in my lodge about having ever been in a Vietnam protest for one thing. So we're keeping <laughs> yeah. politics uh, and religion out of lodge, Dale? Yeah. What is this? Well, I mean. I, I, I was about to jump in ahead of Steve and answer that question. I mean, Brother Steve lived through a very different experience than any of us are because what Brother Steve did not have was that instant feedback and just piling on that you get in the age of social media. Like Robert posts something, he posts his opinion. Five seconds later, he's got 700 responses calling him a piece of crap. And he's a, you know, he's a this, he's a that, he's a commie and a Nazi and everything rolled together. You didn't have that. And I think the big difference, and this this is dating me, right? Um, because I, I do live in social media. Um, the difference is there's a huge difference between, you know, what you call those keyboard warriors that, you know, act really tough on social media. Um, but if you catch them in the real world, they're not super tough. That is a world of difference between Brother Steve, who was exercising his constitutional right to assemble and and be present and be there, right? So it was Brother Steve Harrison standing there protesting or marching or what have you, uh, as opposed to somebody, you know, with the username, you know, I'm a cool dude 69 posting something that he hates Robert. You know, it's just two completely different worlds. And we've become so numb to the fact as a society that people are way tougher on social media than they are in the real world, you know, and they won't have those same opinions and values when their face is plastered next to it. You know what I mean? So. I think that's that's a big delineator between what folks of Brother Steve's generation and people younger than myself are currently doing. But I'm perfect because I'm right in between. So, okay. So I don't know how much time you got left. Let me just point out a couple quick things then about that we talked about at the first. Um, so the the later boomers that were really a part of this whole Vietnam thing, uh, there was a single day when they knew not go to Vietnam. That doesn't mean that they weren't against the war or for the war or anything else. But you had that lottery starting in 1969. And fully half of all the males who are of draft age on there and that Vietnam was over for them. Then every subsequent year, you had another lottery, and in those subsequent years, fully 70 to 80 percent of those learned that Vietnam would not. And I think that has a lot to do with the difference in attitudes between the early boomers and the late. And I took a gap year when that started, and I taught high school math for a year, and then I went back to college. and. Those people now, lots of them knew that Vietnam was not a factor in their life. Uh, and in, in addition to that, all of those in loco parentis rules in one year, just one year, had gone away. So, I mean, every one of them, we even had in the, my graduate dorm, we had a wine tasting party at one point. And of course, women were allowed in the dorms and all that other stuff was completely gone. So... Um, it was, it was a, probably for those people who were born as early as maybe 51 to 55, where the brother who wrote in was born, had a more no, normal college experience, probably like you guys did. And again, I don't, I don't know what else we have time for. Um, yeah, so what, that, what, what I think the best way to kind of wrap this up. Uh, for now, because again, we we could have a whole other you know uh, part two of this uh, because it's fascinating to hear um, you know this formulative perspectives and, and some of the you know 
what makes the, the, the late boomers different than the early boomers and all that. So uh, what I would kind of like to do is kind of start end with a final question and we'll, we'll go, go around and add to that because as, as we've outlined today that we have, again, a generation that has had its, its own morals and values established through the way they grew up. And that could be through their, their hyper-local, you know, within their, their home or community. That could be within, uh, you know, cr- uh, events around the world. That could be about, you know, the possibility of being drafted. Um, that could be the, the pop culture we alluded to as well. And so going back to kind of my, my setting the stage part right in the beginning is how, how best can we, um, as a fraternity, uh, respect each other's formulative um, morality systems and values, even if they may be different than our own. So we're not talking religion and politics. We're talking about just in general, like if we're going to be, you know, if, if, if Gen Z is going to be sitting in lodge with their grandfather to have the shared experience, you know, completely different mindsets, completely different worlds they grew up in. How can we best respect and share that space with our brothers, regardless of the generation they came in. So I'm going to start with Jason. Me. I'm going to start with Jason, oh. and we'll go all the way around. Make sure everyone has has a has a piece to add there. Jason. So I think the first way to be able to do that is to focus on the commonalities. Uh, you are in that lodge room with like-minded brethren who don't have to agree on everything uh but they do you know they've gone through the same degrees that you have gone through they all have that uh you know that same benchmark of a belief in the supreme being uh they're there to take good men and make them better and i think by by focusing within the confines of you know the the lodge meeting on the purpose for you all meeting together, I think that's a good first step toward, um, you know, <clears throat> helping bridge bridge the gap when there is a you know political system or or um, other you know differences of of beliefs and and opinions. So finding the common ground and some that's something that's easy to do within masonry, I think, is key. Nice. Thanks, Jason. Joe, what do you think? Wow, I get to go before RJ? Oh my goodness. I'm going to have my own original answer. That's great. So, uh, what Joe said. my thought on this is, thank you. Uh, my thought on this is uh, similar to what Jason said, where, again, you have to focus on the that tie that binds, right? No matter whether you're a 25-year-old Mason or a 95-year-old Mason, um, there are, there is that shared experience. Um, and that shared experience is the initiatory process. Now, what you do with it after, you know, whether you're a, and we've, we've said this so many times on the show, whether you're a social club Mason or you're a philosophical Mason, or you're a dinner club Mason, or you're a green bean Mason, whichever flavor of Masonry you is at the end of the day, you have that shared experience and you can use that to leverage fellowship with these brothers um and use that to foster relationships i mean what other organization can you say you know my best friends are a 25 year old dude and a 90 year old dude um there there aren't very many so i think why not celebrate the differences by focusing on that that single path that you all took together um and and just work towards commonalities starting off that so i think that's uh I think that's a good place to start. And I think some lodges do it quite well. Um, some lodges don't. Some lodges are very ger- generationally divided, right? You have all the 70-year-olds sitting on this side of the room and the 30-year-olds sitting on this side of the room if you have that many people. Um, but I think if you just focus on what got you there to begin with, a lot of good things can happen after that. So that's all I got. Sweet. Thank you. Robert. Oh, I got to go after Joe. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, uh, 
I, I think I, I mentioned this in the YouTube chat, and that is that before Masonry, uh, I was a punk rock playing uh, guitar guy who really disagreed with my mom. She was a registered Democrat, born in 1954, and uh, she wrote straight. She she voted straight ticket Democrat, and uh, I like to to piss her off. I joined the Young Republicans, and <laughs> I did all the things right to to not be my parents. And uh, what was so interesting was that after masonry it actually took me i mean i was kind of like apolitical between the ages of you know let's say 20 and 26 but when i turned 27 and i joined a masonic lodge uh i had these interactions with people i I never would have had interaction with, right? Masonry brings together people of, you know, great differences and all, all of that. And something happened where all of a sudden I had these people who I thought were so damn cool. And they were from way different backgrounds and, and belief structures and, and it and it really was interesting to me because at that time i would uh, i would have i would have said something like masonic lodges are really tolerant but the fact of the matter is and it's just serendipitous that you kind of asked this question because this week on the, the podcast i'm i'm talking about tolerance as a philosophical topic and <laughs> something that came across to me was this idea that no masonry is not tolerant Masonry is accepting. Is it like tolerance is the middle ground between hate and acceptance? And masonry is so different because the way it's supposed to work is accepting of these different belief structures and and all of these things. And it gave me such a different viewpoint. Um, and while there's, you know, good fun and jokes and things like that for the different generations, you know, I'm told all the time that, uh, like, I'm on the cusp. I'm a Gen X and a millennial. So they're like, oh, the millennial people are always like, uh, I'm lazy and I'm entitled. And uh, the people who make fun of Gen X are like, I'm just lazy. <laughs> uh, but I'm none of those things, right? Um, I don't know. It, it just feels to me like, Masonry does such a great job of bringing us together for the most part, generalizing, right? There are outliers, um, but I never would have had these experiences and to, uh, to listen to guys like uh, Brother Steve, who has brought a really unique perspective. When you ask people about life experiences and you kind of cross-section Freemasonry in there. And, you know, I've had similar conversations with Gary Meisner, who we talked about in the chat, um, and guys of my lodge that, you know, I we've asked questions for contemplation in lodge, and the answers we get from people, I mean, I swear to you that I really try never to judge a book by its cover, but I kind of do still, all the time. and people surprise me so often that I don't know why I still do this. And the answers from our generational brothers who are, you know, in their fifties, sixties, and even seventies, uh, surprise me so much. And I'm like, why, why does this exist? And uh, Freemasonry just really kind of blows these stereotypes out of the water. A lot of times for me anyway, I don't know if I answered your question, John, but I appreciate you for asking awful horrible mm -hmm. try again next time okay uh okay brother steve how, how can we how can we blend this syncretic system together as freemasons from across the generations well maybe the simple answer is uh first of all we're supposed to meet on the level Love um it. and that that might uh much better than robert's answer yeah <laughs> it, it might satisfy some of it um a couple of three weeks ago, you guys had a show on politics and religion. And I know that there were uh, proponents for discussing politics in the lodge. Uh, 
Um, I, and, and I think that's fine on a certain level, but in a way it helps that we don't because then we don't get into these discussions that would be a bit more than spirited and get all upset with each other. Um, and I, I do think that helps sometimes, uh, just, just not to talk about it. Uh, interestingly enough, several weeks ago in my own lodge, uh, we, we had a discussion uh, that sort of centered around, uh, we are brothers and therefore you ought to be able to say anything you want in front of your brothers and they ought to be understanding. And that's true. You know, on, in a perfect world, hmm. I did kind of take the devil's advocate role on that because we're brothers, but we're also human. And um, those uh, differences of opinion are always going to exist, and they may get a little bit, uh, oh, heated at some point in time. Um, for my own personal practice and everything, I... I think, by and large, Masons do that. I certainly experience a lot of courtesy in Lodge. And um, so I, I don't know that we are greatly at fault for not doing it right now. Well said. Awesome. Well, thank you, Brother Steve, for coming on and sharing your experience. Uh, it's been utterly fantastic to learn uh, a yep. lot about your formative years and how how you brought those those uh, morals and values into the craft with you, and so you guys, you obviously it goes without saying, you're an icon to the craft, and we appreciate everything that that you do as well. So I wanted to make sure that was explicitly said, even though we're all thinking it, it's got to be said. Uh, so as for me, um, echo everything everybody else said, and want to add in that what well, the first thing that came to mind for me for that question was, um, have you ever you know, we've heard of the golden rule, right? treat others the way you want to be treated. And then there's been a, a modern adaptation to that called the platinum rule, which is to treat others the way they would like to be treated. And so where it, it is best to meet on the level and, and, you know, keep politics and religion out, you know, outside of the lodge experience, then another way to think of it too is right. Um, don't, you know, don't ask, uh, necessarily every boomer what their TikTok handle is, right? Or, you know, or, or likewise, d uh, as, as a boomer, don't ask, you know, uh, um, a young professional, a y very young Gen Z, late millennial, um, you know, if they can meet at, uh, meet for lunch or meet to do a ritual at um, 12 o'clock on a Tuesday, because they're, they're probably, you know, they're probably working where, where the, the, the late boomer is probably retired by now. So, right, we have to make sure that we, um, while we meet on the level, we also try to um, see things from everyone's perspective, um, agree to disagree sometimes on, on certain things, but but remember that we are in part of this uh, this beautiful fraternity that we have that is something special and unique that is not found anywhere else in, in the world anymore, and, and we we still need this this area where we can all be together um, as one fraternity and share this experience where we're, we're, we're getting more and more divided every day. So with that, um, I want to thank you all very much for watching, and we'll see you next week. Keep searching for more light. Have a good night. Wow.